Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode eight. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Maggie Park. And uh, we have a special guest today, Daniel Bone from the Voice of Geekdom channel on YouTube. <laughs> Daniel, welcome. Uh, good to talk Thank to you. Thank you. I got to visit with you on your channel a little while back. Uh, uh, fun to yeah. have you over here for discussion today. Yeah, it was a while ago now, um, over a year ago now, I think we had an, had you on for quite a long interview talking about your whole career and what you're doing with Signum and everything else on the channel. And um, yeah, it was really good fun. It was yeah. kind of a breakthrough moment for my channel, actually, because uh, it was quite a small channel before that. It's still quite small, but, <laughs> but um, it was quite a big moment for me. Um, and it was a pleasure. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, good to, good to have you back. And you're going to be coming to Mythmoot this year, right? That's right. Yeah, I've uh, I've got my plane tickets sorted. So I've got my I've put my uh, my three day pass. I think it's a three day pass. Um, it's the whole thing anyway. Um, yeah, so yeah. yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there and mingling with people and so on. Um, not going to speak or anything, but <laughs> so I'm just going to just going to melt into the background and um, you know <clears throat> maybe do a bit of network and networking and meet some new folks and um, yeah. Should be fun. It'll be my first time in the U.S. as well, so I'm really looking forward to it. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's it should be it should be. I Mythmood is always is always awesome. It'll be great to great to connect with you there. Yeah. Uh, the Higgy Baby is liking your poster in the background. That is the <laughs> Tolkien poster that I had on my college dorm room wall uh, throughout uh -huh. uh, my college experience. That's uh, um, I I always have. <laughs> It's funny because in many ways, I never, there's a lot of things I never liked about that poster. Like I spent a lot of time in college yeah. looking at it in disapproval. Like I'd strongly dislike the golem at the bottom. Like he looks, uh, and like Gimli looks like, Super Gimli's depressed. name is mis is misspelled as well. I don't know if you noticed <laughs> yeah. that, but it's like what yeah. what's going on there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, but nevertheless, like the the d despite the fact that. Uh, the more I looked at it, the more I found I disliked almost every individual element uh, in the poster. <laughs> Nevertheless, like it, th that sight of that poster still fills me with, uh, you know, warm, fuzzy associations. Exactly <laughs> the same so thing. I, I, I had it on my bedroom wall um, yeah. when I was, I, I'm a little bit younger than you, so it might have been around the same time because I was early teens. Um, yeah. So, yeah, probably around the same time or a little later i had the yeah. same poster on my bedroom wall and um so i have the same feeling about it i moved into an office here to do my channel um and so i decided to buy a nice version of it nice. <laughs> yeah yeah cool cool well we wanted to start off to our topic of conversation today is the idea of 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 canon of establishing uh, defining and defending the idea of canon. Canon is a can be a really complicated idea for people. I'll tell one little brief story to kind of begin, um, and that is, of course, the use of the word canon, um, like the popular use of the word canon in discussions among fandom is a. It's, there have been discussions about canon for a long time, but it's really become a very high-profile word in the last, um, you know, in the last few years. I, I, I think. I mean, I keep hearing people talk about it in ways I didn't really hear people talk about it before. And this one experience I remember, which was kind of fun, was I was uh, at Magnolia Moot, the first Magnolia Moot we had uh, several years back uh, down in North Carolina, and it was being hosted um, at Johnson C. Smith University. 
and my friend and uh, colleague uh, Matthew DeForest, who's a dean down there, was um, was the you know kind of our official host there at the venue, and he's you know been a English professor for decades, and so he and I are both English professors, right? And so we're having this discussion, and the issue of canon comes up, right? And people are talking about the canon, uh, and as the conversation went on, Matt and I g- looked at each other, and we ex- we exchanged this look, and the look was we, we were very clearly non-verbally saying. These people do not mean the same thing by this word that we mean by this word. Like, as of course, English professors have talked about the canon for a very long time, right? This is a long-standing issue, which you know came into significant controversy in the last thirty to forty years, basically, right? The the traditional idea of the canon was is connected with the idea of canonization, right? Using that explicitly yeah. as a metaphor, canonization to, to to the process by which someone is installed as an official saint in the in the Catholic Church. Right? Yeah, I was I was about to say it was a biblical concept first. Exactly anyway. right. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it, was, it was a sort of Catholic thing, um, what Anglican do. But anyway. Then, uh, then that metaphorically that got carried over. The concept got carried over into literature, and the idea of the canon is, canon yeah, like the 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 series of like the great accepted authors. Uh, I went, body. yeah, exactly. I went to I went to Williams College, um, and at Williams College there's a like this building which is where all the faculty offices were, and there were names up in stone. Uh, like around the top of the building. It was like, you know, Aristotle, Dante, uh, Homer. It was like all the, like the great, not just literature, but, you know, literature, philosophy, you know, all these, you know, great. And I, I always, I always picture that building in my head when I think of the canon, right? Like those people who's get the name of Shakespeare. He was up there too, you know, who get their names carven in stone, right? On the list of, and so of course, like in, within literary circles, um, the discussion of the canon was like basically saying we need to ditch the whole idea of canon, right? Because, you know, the idea that these authors are the great, everyone agrees, these authors are the great authors, right? These are the, these, you know, you, you read, you know, Chaucer and Shakespeare and Milton, and this is like the backbone of English literature and whatever. Um, and of course, the, the the resistance to the idea of the canon came from, you know, people who are saying, what about what about women? What about minorities? Right. Like there are all these people that are being, you know, we got this, you know, the canon of 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 dead white men. Um, and that's a perfectly legitimate criticism of the canon. And even like the sure. idea, like there became more and more resistance to the idea of saying this author is the great author and like the one that everybody should study, the one you have to know. And so, again, there's been a lot of change in, you know, the literature world. It used to be like if you you know if you got a PhD in literature, you had to know like these other these authors that you know whose work you definitely had to know, or else you couldn't really call yourself a PhD. And again, that idea of the canon has been uh, has been sort of going, but but as as this idea of the canonicity of particular authors um, has been on the sharp decrease in the world of literary studies. I keep noticing now the word is growing and growing in other places. And it's not that exactly, right? It's not exactly saying like, okay, you know, what are like the great science fiction films, right? That like, you know, are, that are canon, you know, that, that are in the canon of science fiction in that sense. But the concept of canon um, uh, 
is now being used in this sort of in this sort of different way, right? Um, where it's an it's a it's a concept of sort of defining what what's official, like what counts when you've got all of this sort of stuff out there. And in some with some fandoms, you know, with some areas, it's more complicated than others, right? Like Star Wars, where you have the movies and people argue about the different movies and people and, and the books, right? Like, are any you know what are the books is, you know, what is canon, right? What counts as canon? Um, and you have different people who will like you know in my canon, you know, I, I consider this mm-hmm. canon or whatever. And those are the discussions that people have. So, anyway, this and is like, yeah, go ahead. And you hear about it loads within fan communities. I mean, my first entry to it was as an undergrad, exactly as you said, the the canon of literature. But then you get into the fandom studies. And when you think fan fiction, if it's canon or non-canon, that immediately tells you if they're using inspiration from the text or if they're creating their own characters. But that assumes that we all have the same definition of what is canon. And that's where I think it does become really gray. And Dan, I love what you were talking about before when we were discussing what we would talk about tonight of just like, who decides what canon is. And with Tolkien, obviously, mm-hmm. we have a few murky layers that we can weed mm-hmm. through um, to define that. So yeah, I think it's, it's good to just keep in mind that everybody's canon might be a little bit different, but we'll yeah. try to agree what we mean. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's yeah. quite it's quite important to, to like kind of define what you mean by the term before yeah. we start talking about this, because there's also another meaning which you've not mentioned as well, which is the kind of very first meaning. Um, which is a, a rule by which something is to be judged um, right. in, a, in a very basic sense. Um, right. And Tolkien used the word in that context in one of his letters when he was responding to, um, ironically, an adaptation, a movie adaptation. Um, he talks about the, the canons of narrative and how they should be respected and so on. And, and what he's really talking about there is not sort of continuity, but more right. the rules. rules. Rule, the yeah, rules, exactly. the internal rules <laughs> the of the narrative. The accepted rules, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's important to, to understand what we mean by that. Um, yeah. I, I think the better, more useful word to use um, is continuity mm-hmm. for what people talk about when they when they use the word canon. Um, right. You're also, you're, you're absolutely right to bring up Star Wars because I think that is the, the main reason why this word has become used in this way is because uh, LucasArts had they introduced this idea of sort of tiers of canon where mm-hmm. whereby the movies were the core thing and then the stuff which was a fixed narrative and was licensed was a layer below that and then there was sort of games and things like that that would have a branching narrative where the sort of um, the way that the narrative is kind of rendered can vary because it's a game mm-hmm. um, and then below that there's sort of toys and things like that um, yeah. so so that idea has become really I think ingrained in people because of Star Wars more than anything else that's that's right. my interpretation of how I've seen the, the term used mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah, it's it's interesting to me that it's so most people aren't really familiar. Like most people don't really think about the religious concepts associated with that, right? When people talk about canon, people are not usually thinking about saints, and they're certainly not thinking about like the rules for the behavior of monks and friars, which, as you say, that was also that was like the definition of the word canon. And yet, I think that the word retains like a quasi-religious edge. I think it totally does. Like it's the same thing you're talking about with fidelity, you know, where like it has that same kind of intense attachment to behavior that if you break canon, 
you have you are a betrayer you know yes, like that part yes, of the feeling yes. that comes along there's, with it the, i mean it's there's yeah the there's an edge to canon discussions, mm. which almost sounds like we're talking about blasphemy here. If you're mm-hmm. deviating, you know, like this, this, and, and th- that's not a word that people would use about it. And yet again, there's, 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 uh, there's that kind of note <laughs> in those discussions, which is one of the reasons why I'm always a little leery of the word canon because uh, it's, it's, it gets, um, it can get weird uh, <laughs> kind of quickly in that way. Um, but, um, uh, Daniel, I know you, you recently, uh, have, uh, uh, joined the esteemed ranks of people getting yelled at on social media. Uh, you, you want and, and it was yeah. about Canon, right? You, you want to uh, kind of tell that story? And, exactly. And, and, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So it was, it was around the time that people were also shouting at you about, uh, right. dwarf beards and so dwarf on. beards. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and, and actually that was part of probably what triggered me to, to start thinking about this because I was mm-hmm. watching everybody reacting and overreacting to the trailer and so on. Right. Um, and I, I thought to myself, well, this is, this seems like a teaching moment to me. So right. I'm going to, I'm going to I agree. <laughs> put, put my teacher's hat on and, um, lecture you all about what I think about this concept. And so, you know, I'm not any particular authority. I'm not, a, I'm not a Tolkien scholar. I'm just a YouTuber, but I, I decided to kind of, list off my ideas about what canon is and how it it's not necessarily the most important way to look at Tolkien's sort of body of legend as a whole because it's where canonization does exist in Tolkien I would argue and I didn't say this in the tweet and you know Twitter is difficult to to um it's very difficult to kind of get your whole thoughts across because it's not like you're writing an essay you don't have the space for that but what what i should have maybe put in stronger terms was where canonization does exist in tolkien is in the published silmarillion where we talk about the silmarillion versus the rest of the works the 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 drafts over many decades and so on the history of middle earth series what i was getting at was the idea of that being um christopher's canonization of Christopher the, made some the, choices. The drafts yeah. that he, mm-hmm. he he chose, the editorial choices that mm-hmm. he made. Um, and so that is canonization in exactly the same way as canonization of books of the Bible um, were canonized. That's canonization in the way that the, the religious uh, context would understand the term. Um, and so I, what I was describing and the arguments that I made in that, in that tweet were, one, number one, this is a kind of they're sort of quite arbitrary choices that Christopher made he was trying to be deliberately conservative in order to preserve as much of his father's work without um, yes. contradicting things which required that he he use a lot of the pre Lord of the Rings texts yes absolutely. he was extremely conservative with stuff that was post Lord of the Rings and only yes. included things that absolutely had to be included like Galadriel right um, and then there were gaps that he had to fill. And and that's interesting because that's stuff that didn't come from Tolkien's own pen. It came from Christopher himself and from yeah. Guy Gabriel Kay. Who he, and he, even the choice that he made to like he made the editorial choice to minimize those. Right. He, he, mm-hmm. he, he wants to ha- he wanted to have as, as much of the text be written by Tolkien as humanly possible. And that itself is an interesting choice, which led to 
you know, some things not being included, which might otherwise have been, you know, where, where there, because where there were, there were lots of things where Tolkien had really clear ideas. This is what I want to happen, but he hadn't written a full continuous narrative of it. So Christopher couldn't include it. So it's therefore not canon, right? In the, in the Silmarillion for that reason, not because Tolkien didn't like it, didn't mean it, you know, did, that it's inferior in some way. It's just that, a narrative version that fit into the context of the published Silmarillion didn't exist, and he didn't want to write one or or have Guy, Guy Gabriel K write one, you know. So, there it was. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry, sorry. To just, just, just adding to, not trying to interrupt there. Yeah, uh, uh, no, that's great. Um, and so the the other part of my argument was also the the fact that built into Tolkien's works there is a narrative frame where there's there's the there's the translation frame of the Lord of the Rings, which was a a, a post hoc. Um, rationalization of the name choices that he made in the hobbit essentially mm -hmm. um and 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 so there's there's this sort of frame around the narrative which introduces a unreliable narrator concept mm -hmm. um and and when people use that term it, it it can be applied differently to different authors right. and it's it's right. not always equal um some authors will write in a way which is intended to mislead you um, whereas Tolkien is in, in more of a grey area where we've got this kind of quasi omnipotent narrator, but it's also slanted, usually. Um, and so that that introduces a sort of unstable element to the, even the core texts that were published during his own lifetime. Yes. Whereby we can't necessarily um, sort of commit certain aspects or details of the lore and the continuity to any particular um, hard and fast rule. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I tweeted about this. I, 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 there's things that I would have worded differently if I could have done now. Uh, you know, <laughs> looking back on it, I, I was a little bit, I was trying to get people's attention because I'd largely use Twitter to market my channel and get people's attention and to a lesser extent to network with people and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm as guilty as, as any sort of YouTuber or person that's doing that of trying to get people's attention. And I, I got a lot of attention. A lot of people agreed with it quite strongly. And um, it went slightly by my standards, at least slightly viral. Um, I'm not in the, the, Point in my um, Tolkien influencer career, <laughs> using that word ironically, um, yeah. where that, I'm, that I'm getting, I'm, so getting it, I'm getting interviewed so by ways. IGN. Yeah, right. Um, right. But but by my standards, it went quite viral. A lot of people saw that post, and um, a lot of people agreed with it. And then and then the kind of the shouting crowd <laughs> kind of got hold of it as well because it turned up in their timelines and um, some some very nasty quote retweets appeared um so mm -hmm. stopped paying attention at that point but right, right. <laughs> but yeah understandably yeah so um so basically you were you're 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 challenging the idea of the usefulness of talking about canon in in tolkien mm. basically yeah, in part i just what was I it just... that people objected to most do you think like that when you were getting like what what exactly were people i mean i, I know it, it's easy after a while and healthy yeah. To stop paying attention, but the uh, the family friendly version of what people were yelling at you—that is like, <laughs> what do you what what do you think upset the people who were upset? What do you think it was that upset them? I think there were two mistakes that I made, and one of which was that I started out by saying, if you encounter somebody that is talking about the Tolkien canon as this holy thing that 
needs to be respected, you're probably talking to somebody that doesn't understand Tolkien as well as they think you do. Um, so that was the, the wording that I would change because that's bordering on ad hominem and probably I shouldn't have worded it that way. Um, the, the other mistake that I made was I, I brought God into it. Um, so I, I, I also, um, as an example, talked about how the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke don't, don't agree with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. thinking about the idea of, of biblical canon again, um, I, I thought that was a good and relevant example, but obviously that <laughs> inflames some strong opinions. So it's... it brings up a whole different set of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah it opens um, another can of worms that I probably could have done without in, the, right. in that moment. But... Right. That is a, a powerful combination of worm cans, to be sure. But <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, but but yeah, yeah. So um, um, I, I mean, I think uh, I mean I certainly experienced. Very similar things. I mean, one of the things that I found myself when people were yelling at me, um, which they've mostly stopped doing, uh, and occasionally someone who is late to the party will still come in and yell because they didn't get their yell in. But uh, uh, but but anyway, it's it's uh, mostly stopped now. But one of the things that surprised me most was not the passion that people were defending their position with, but what position exactly they were defending. Right. Uh, I, I mean, like we we're talking about dwarf beards and my whole point was mm. simply like there's there's Tolkien had lots of different ideas about dwarves. Yeah. Right. You're like fixated on one and telling me that it's essential to the story. And I'm like, I can't understand how you can say it's essential when it's one of, you know, five different ideas, very different ideas that Tolkien had about dwarves over the course of his life. And um, and they started. It was, I mean, go, here I am going to open up an almost exactly similar can of worms because I'm incapable of learning from your lessons that you're just now trying to teach me. But honestly, it was exactly like conversations I have had and heard about like the inerrancy of the Bible, right? Um, people immediately started saying, there, there aren't contradictions in Tolkien. And I'm like, what even are you talking about? I don't know an author who's more famous for like changing his mind and developing his ideas. And indeed, one of the things that makes Tolkien so great was his power of retcon, like how he would develop the story, turn it completely on its head, like decide he's going to go on a 100% opposite direction with it. Right. And then work that in to like work the change itself into the story. Like the dwarves are actually a cool example. Um, the line in, the appendix of the Lord of the Rings, where he says, and this is the line which famously, uh, I, you know, film Gimli refers to, right? About some people saying there are no dwarf women, right? Um, like, you know, he, so when he, when he says in the append, in, in appendix A, there's this story, this legend among men, right? That, um, that there are no dwarf women. Um, but this is absurd, right? Um, you know, and that they like, just like, you know, are generated from the stone. Um, this is, but this is obviously absurd, right? That thing that he is crediting as a legend among men and calling absurd is exactly what he himself said about dwarves like two decades before, right? And so he's taking his own old writings mm -hmm. and instead of just being like, okay, let's not talk about what I used to say about dwarves, he incorporates it into the story, right? There exists 
legends that this was true of dwarves, that there were no women and that they were just generated from the stone. Yeah, yeah, you wrote them, right? <laughs> Tolkien wrote those <laughs> legends about dwarves, but now he's changed his mind. So rather, again, rather than just like brush it under the rug, he makes it part of the story. Like that, Tolkien is brilliant that way. And it's one of the things that gives to his stories this kind of richness, right? Um, yep. So, uh, but but again, the reaction that I was getting for, so um, here I am trying to, um, a teaching moment, right? Again, I'm trying to talk about this. I'm like, let's like look at both how Tolkien's ideas changed over time, how he like responded to and like dealt with his changing ideas over time and incorporate and like kind of, you know, broaden our minds a little bit in thinking about how we talk about, you know, what Tolkien did or didn't say on particular subjects. And everybody was treating it like I was attacking, to like, not everybody, but these people were reacting like I was attacking Tolkien, right? Like I was saying, um, Tolkien's incompetent or his works suck or something because they contain contradictions, right? And mm. I'm, I, I, I was, I didn't even know what, how, what to do with these people, but uh, but I had exactly the experience. I mean, so, I mean, I hear what you're saying about maybe you'd word it differently a second time, but I think your observation is quite right that that it does seem there does seem to me to be a correlation between people who have an extremely fervent desire to defend Tolkien's canon, right? Um, and and I, 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 there's a correlation between that and not really having a clear and broad idea of Tolkien's idea, Tolkien's thoughts, not, you know, sort of not know, not knowing them as quite as well as 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 they as, as they might think. Um, Anyway, so yeah, it's again, that's hardly universal by any stretch. I know many people, indeed, many you know prominent and published scholars, who do defend it with that kind of fervor and know quite well, you know, Tolkien's whole corpus. So I'm not saying that there's an absolute correlation there, but mm. I but I agree there is some significant overlap, um, uh, and I know for sure my own kind of journey from purism, right? From uh, you know I. I used to, I talk about this a lot, you know, and when I talk about purism, about being a purist, what I mean are, is that impulse to say, that's wrong, that's wrong, right? That is wrong. That is not what is, you know, you're being untrue to Tolkien. That is, that is, you know, to, to judge whether or not it is right or wrong um, based on it. Like that's when that's the first question you're asking and when you're kind of appointing yourself as, you know, judge and arbiter over that question, um, I, I, again, I used to, that's totally how I was. Um, and, uh, what changed for me? Uh, like well, the reason I'm not that way anymore, um, is learning more, reading the history of Mid-Earth, right. And learning more mm. about Tolkien's entire, you know, vision and his own, the adventure of his life, you know, and the way these stories develop, you know, his creative adventure over his life. And it's, um, it has been transformative, uh, from my own perspective on, on, on a lot of these things. And just learning how to be a rational human being that can have a normal conversation. So, you know, that also helps. The I'm a little better at that than I used to be. Too. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think we're all a little better at that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the answer to the dwarf beards question, uh, <laughs> for example is do dwarves do dwarven women have beards the answer is both yes and no both yes and um, no yeah 
I mean, again, it's just <laughs> as fair to say it's also true that there are no dwarf women. Like Tolkien, in the yeah. sense that Tolkien uh-huh. said that at one point. That's in a sense that's also true. You know, yeah. And a lot go of people not, say go that. not to a sorry go oh. not to a go not to a Tolkien professor for an interpretation, for they will answer <laughs> both no and yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's almost always a no and yes question. There are a few things which which the answer is always one or the other. But but yeah, I mean it's it's uh, and again this is was this is one of the things that makes Tolkien so much fun, right? So mm-hmm. much yeah. uh, uh, so interesting uh, is it is um, it is it's such a marvelous human experience right like Tolkien it's it's about the journey right? it's about his journey as much as our journey and I mean oh my goodness there's so much there's so much there um but um yeah yeah um but yeah so coming back in general to the idea of canon um what do you find so again Daniel and you're kind of uh the arguments or being yelled at or whatever people who are setting out essentially to defend the Mm -hmm. canon of Tolkien. What do you find they normally mean by that? Like I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I have in my head, like, uh, I don't know if there is a standard definition, but is there like a, a most common concept that people have in their minds when they talk about the canon of Tolkien? Well, there is this uh, wonderfully um, nebulous and uh, kind of oxymoron of headcanon, right? So, right. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's it, it's an interesting term because it, it makes no sense. It's an oxymoron, but it, it but it's also it's one of those things that you you can't help using that term because it's also really useful sometimes. Um, right. And what it means is it, this is my interpretation, right? Um, and I, I tend to think that a lot of the times these arguments are coming from a, a point of view, which is an interpretation, which has been mistaken for being um, an ironclad piece right. of, of canon, right. a, a law, a, a rule, right. a, a fact. Um, that's the real danger. And so that's right? that's that's yeah. the danger of thinking about this concept and, and overthinking it and um, using it too broadly. Right. Um, mm-hmm. right. So, yeah, and and that's when I when I when thinking about that, like I said, that sort of religious edge that the word still has, right? That seems to me the main danger, right? And the the reason that I always get uncomfortable when people start using the word canon and talking about canon, because it seems like a way of taking a conviction of yours, right, um, and speaking of it as if it were, as you say, an objective fact. Right. And mm-hmm. that's hard. And often it's, it's used quite maliciously where they're trying to suss out the person that they're speaking with, you know, using fan speak to try to figure out what level of knowledge you have. I think because it can be used quite offensively, I mean, not in terms of pissing you off, but in terms of aggression, like it's mm-hmm. it's not defense, it's offense to try to figure out where you are and where they are in the hierarchy of that conversation. Yes. It's real hard to engage in that kind of conversation because you're already at a place of feeling defensive. And I don't have any interest in that. Mm-hmm. So when that immediately shuts down a conversation, that's a terrible way to start, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
it's um, exactly as Jez says on YouTube there, uh, wielding cannon like a weapon. Uh, pardon the yeah. pun. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to, you know, you want to be firing the cannon at anybody. Right. And it um, also ignores the, all the stuff we've been talking about with adaptation that sometimes canon needs to be adjusted in order for a story to work visually. That doesn't mean it's disregarded. It's probably acknowledged and then a conscious decision is made. But, you know, the fact that there's no nuance to this, like disrupting canon equals bad. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think what I've heard most from people when they talk about Tolkien canon, um, of course, Tolkien, in my mind, Tolkien is such a classically difficult um, situation to apply the concept of canon to, right? Because on the one hand, it seems simpler than others. Like, the thing that makes Star Wars and even things like Marvel, right, into a challenge, right, to, you know, why, why canon isn't, isn't kind of important in those uh, fandoms is that you've got, like, contributions from all over the place, right? You know, you've got, you've got films and different media, different creators all over the place, right? Like are the, are the original Marvel comic books canon, you know, what, or, like, is that the only thing that's canon is that, you know, it, anyway, what, you know, like, do you have the, the officially approved movies, you know, like the, um, anyway, so there's all this, all these different questions, but again, the, the, the impulse to say this is inside the boundary and that's outside the boundary, it makes, it makes a little bit more sense to me, right? With Tolkien, on the one hand, it's a simpler mm. situation because the Tolkien estate has worked very hard to prevent a situation where we have like multiple creators contributing to the Middle Earth concept, right? Mm -hmm. There's Tolkien's work mm -hmm. edited by Christopher, right? So we've got Tolkien, we've got Christopher. Those are the two players so far, right? On this, um, uh, on this field of defining Tolkien canon, right? So on the one hand, the boundaries would seem easier to establish than they do in other fandoms where, or even things like Star Trek, like think about Star Trek and the, uh, you know, the, like the, all the different series and cartoons and things like that. Like what counts as canon, right? What's really part of the, uh, what's really part of the thing. But within Tolkien then though, what seems simpler from the beginning, because it's all just Tolkien and Christopher's editorial choices, um, pretty quickly becomes fairly complex, right? And what I find is that, in my experience, I think that most people, when they're trying to insist on a Tolkien canon, are tending to insist on um, published works. Like, works... So I've, I've heard people define it and say... Because I've sometimes asked. They're like, that violates Tolkien canon. I'm like, what even are you talking about here? Like, I don't even understand. Um, mm. And they'll say... I only consider works published in his lifetime as canon. And I've heard people, I, I, I've gotten yelled at for citing something from like the history of Middle Earth or something. And people say, um, I mean, this even came up, um, Maggie, in some of our earlier discussions when I was talking about how like the choices you have to make as an adapter, like, and taking into account, even if it doesn't, like, you don't even have to have the rights to, you know, one of these other, like the history of Middle Earth texts in order to say, like, I'm going to, like, are we going to do it in a round earth or flat earth environment? Right. Like that's an example, right. Of a choice mm -hmm. that you have to make when you're doing an adaptation and there's Tolkien justification for either way. Right. He, mm -hmm. he wrote both versions of that story. So, um, uh, and you don't need rights to Morgoth's ring, you know, in order to make that choice. Um, okay, fine. 
but I, we got, we were getting comments at the time who were saying like, you can't take notes unpublished notes that he never intended to be, you know, that were published posthumously, like things that he scrawled randomly in the margins and elevate those to the same place that, um, you know, uh, you know, to give that the same weight as you would give to like the Lord of the Rings that he published in his lifetime. Now, on the one hand, that's a perfectly sensible argument, right? But I'm also very resistant to it in other ways. Like on the one hand, yeah, when what we're getting is Tolkien brainstorming, and we see him brainstorming a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, to try to take that out of its brainstorming context and say, like, this is Tolkien's idea. This is the real Middle-earth right here would be silly, right? That would mm-hmm. be nonsensical. However, like, they're Tolkien's thoughts, man. Like, the the fa- the statement, this is a thing that Tolkien thought about Middle-earth is still true, right? Like, and 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 here's here's the thing that really bothers me about publication, which again seems like a seems like a really sensible kind of thing. Like to say, okay, we're we're gonna agree that you know the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, um, this stuff is the is canon, right? Because it was published in his lifetime. To which I would say, hang on. You realize to whom are we giving authority in that? Who, to, whom are, who, whom, to whom are we giving the authority to decide what is canon if we say that? And the answer is ultimately not Tolkien, but Tolkien's publishers. We're giving Alan and Unwin yeah. the authority to tell us what is and is not Tolkien canon. The Lay of Lathian, that was never published. That's not Tolkien's fault. He submitted that sucker for publication three times. Okay, and it kept getting rejected. If the publishers had said yes, then that would be canon now too. Right? We'd have to Vildo and everything else, and that would be canon, according to this term, right? Uh, according to this idea. He tried to publish and try again. You look at the Lost Road, right? The Lost Road, Volume 5 of the History of Middle Earth, which contains. Um, the version of the Silmarillion that Tolkien was literally working up for publication because The Hobbit had come out and uh, and was really popular. And Tolkien was obviously like, my ship has come in. Like, the day has come. I've been working for decades trying to get this stuff published and everyone said no. Well, now I'm in the driver's seat, right? Now I've got a publisher coming to me begging for stuff and boy, do I have stuff, right? So <laughs> here's, here's, and he writes the, you know, so he writes the Aina Lindale, he writes the, uh, um, uh, the the disc- like the description of the geography of the world. He writes the Hlamas, the ta- the the tree of tongues, right about the linguistic development into like all these things. That, you know, he starts writing the annals uh, of Balerion, all of this stuff, which is quick. He's 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 working this up for publication. Like he means for this to be published in that form, um, and they don't do it. They say no. And they're like, actually, can we just get a sequel? And so he's like, well, ho ho, I'm fine. I'll write too, the too Celtic, <laughs> yeah, too, too, too Celtic, which like drives him up the wall, right? Um, yeah. So I, I just, I get a, I get it. I, I, I really have a hard time agreeing with the as sensible and conservative as it sounds. I don't think that the the things published in his lifetime is like that. That set of things is the same set as. The stuff that Tolkien was invested in, that he cared especially about, when you dis- that represents his when, vision. When you discuss it, especially if you're able to say, I know this was a note. I know this was a thought. I know this was a draft. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. fine. Yeah. It's it's fine. And, and yeah, I mean, some of those things are like, again, he was hoping for them to be published, you know, mm-hmm. in, in that form or a form very similar to it. Um, 
So, like, aren't, shouldn't his intentions be taken into account? Like, it's true that many of these notes he never meant to be seen. But again, that doesn't change the fact that there's still his thoughts and ideas as he's working towards mm-hmm. things. And it was, and they, and they can they can inform yeah. a, an adaptation. You're, you're definitely Why not? Right. Why not? Why not? Yeah. And so, what it makes that, it what makes it not a legitimate people. Tolkien thought? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Especially um, the stuff that he said that you know was trying to be published. Like in his mind, that was canon. That was canon. So, yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. rest of it was maybe canon. He was thinking about it. So, like, as long as you're aware it's in the maybe category, okay. And of course, like, the hard thing is that, like, Tevildo was canon to him in the, like, in 1920, right? And, and, uh, you know, the, the other, the later version of it was canon to him in 1933. And the later version was canon to him in 1957. You know, like, it's, right. it's his own idea of what was, what the story was, right? Um, it's, I mean, and it's, it's been one of the fascinating things about studying the nature of Middle Earth, really kind of digging into his post, post Lord of the Rings, um, next to me as well. I've noticed that yours, desk, yours right? comes out every week on this show. So I that's I'd right. Mine ready. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like the vision that we get through reading the nature of, of Middle Earth of like, well, I, I feel like the main thing, and I said this on day one, and it's still true at the almost word uh, today, tonight, actually, we're going to finish the book uh, in our Wednesday night discussion. But um, the, um, the main thing I feel like I've learned from reading the nature of Middle Earth is just I, I, I've gotten a much clearer sense of where Tolkien's head was. Like, um, what what was he wanting to do with the Silmarillion? Like, what did revive? What did preparing the Silmarillion for publication mm. mean to him from like 1957 onwards, essentially, right after the Lord of the Rings? Um, what was that? Pro- what kind of story was he trying to write? I, I feel like we've gotten. We've, this book gives us so much clearer a view of that. Um, and again, I, if this doesn't, yeah. if this doesn't blow up your ideas of, you know, what Tolkien intended is canon. I mean, it's it's hard. It's hard. Uh, so when when the nature of Middle Earth came out, I, I or before it came out actually, there was uh, there was a preview that was released for it, and it was just the first section the section about um ages and um the way that the elvish populations uh, yes. procreate and develop and all, and all yeah. the number crunching that he does yeah. and all my first math. reaction was are you sure that you want to start this book with all this math um <laughs> and right. and i i interviewed carl about it and i i kind of teased him about it a little bit and he, he kind of agreed like he wished that there was more than that was available in the preview because it might put people off. But yeah. I understand now, having read the whole book, I understand why I have read it and studied it in more depth. I've, I understand because it's the most important section of the book because you really it do is. get a sense of, of how he's trying to redevelop the, um, the Silmarillion mm-hmm. um, and, and how that process looked and, and what was going on there. And um, yeah, it's fascinating reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were, we were joking about um, just uh, last week, I think, um, we got to the passage where he was going into more detail about the um, the, tr- the Numenorians getting to Numenor, right? Uh, the Adain going to Numenor at the beginning of the Second Age. Um, right. And he writes this thing about how, like, in the legends, it sounds as if they just all went in one trip, right? But that is obviously absurd. And, like, it must have taken them at least 50 years. And and he throws out these numbers, like 50 years, number of ships, and everything. And, of course, because we've read and studied part one of, you know, with all the mathematical tables, we were all like, we can picture 
the math he's doing like we, mm-hmm. is clear. He did pages and pages of math, which he then boiled down into that paragraph. Right? He obviously did the calculation. Like, say, how many people per ship? How how many? How how long would the round? How many round trips per year would they have made? How much cattle would? How many? You know, how many cows would they have brought <laughs> over? And how many sheep? And how much? And then so okay. So therefore, uh, you know, fifty years is how long it would have taken them. I mean, like, it's it's clear now. From after reading part one, it is crystal clear the math that he's doing in the background in order to figure that's how he thought. That's how he's figuring these things out. And I never really understood that about Tolkien before. Does knowing all that, does it make you enjoy the published works, the stories more now than it would have otherwise? Or, or, in... or, is, it, or is your enjoyment of that process different and separate to your enjoyment of the, the works? In part... It does, I think, uh, increase my enjoyment Um, in the sense that, like, so first of all, when I discovered the parallel things about the Lord of the Rings, right? Like, for instance, and what what I mean by that, uh, the parallel things in the Lord of the Rings are uh, like his phases of the moon tables, right? And his chart of like which Nazgul was in which place on what day. Right. As he's like doing all the work to figure out his maps, right. Measuring distances and calculating, you know, travel times and everything else. Um, when you read the history of Middle Earth, you begin to see some of these things that are behind the narrative in the Lord of the Rings. And so certainly when I discovered that stuff for the first time, I did find it cooler. Right. And I, I'm, I always like the phase of the moon always makes me think, of course, of that scene when Sam is so confused by the phase of the moon after they leave Lothlorien. Right. right. Um, and uh, that's the scene that's kind of a giveaway that he's keeping track. Um, you know, I think most readers never even think about it. Right. Like mm. the fact that the phases of the moon are depicted consistently across the work is not something that um, uh most people even notice, care about, think about even once, right? Um, that's the scene that really draws attention to it. Um, and the, But the fact that he was that detail-oriented, that he did think through things in that way, um, and the significant... I mean, to be honest, the thing that I appreciate more, that like really impresses me about it, is not that he worked it out. It's that he did so without the narrative itself becoming pedantic. Mm. Right. Sometimes you'll see people, authors who work things out in that kind of detail. And And because they know all that information, they can't help themselves but put all that information (laughs) in the narrative (laughs) itself. Right. Um, Like, you know, not going to I've been teasing him a lot because I'm reading him right now. And so I it's he's, he's on my mind. Robert Jordan. I'm in book 12 of the 14 volumes of the wheel of time, rereading the whole series again, which I started when the wheel of time came out. Um, the, the show, I mean, uh, and, um, uh, I, I love Robert Jordan. It's a wonderful series, but he is so guilty of this. Like it's clear. He has thought of names of everybody, right? Like everybody, like every possible minor character. He must've had books full of the lists of like what everybody's name was and there are some passages where he just gives me so much more information than I need, like just listing like. And then they met these sixteen people, and their names were boom. And he'll just like give all of their names, and I'm like, stop with the names. I don't need to know, and it's confusing. I just want to know what happened, right? <laughs> Tolkien doesn't do this, right? I mean, it, it, his calculations are so little intrusive in the narrative. Like he was happy to just like. 
it was like one word, right? And that's what we were seeing with that Numenor passage, like the number 50, like the one word 50 that he just threw in there in one sentence to say it took 50 years. A lot of people reading that, if they had read that for the first, if that had been in the published book, most people would have just been like, oh yeah, he's just pulling that number, you know, out of the air, right? That's just, uh, he's just tossing that down there. But now I know, now that's not how he plays, right? He did all the math and he figured it out and calculated it's going to be 50. Um, But again, you wouldn't know, he doesn't push it in your face, you know, that he's doing that. And so that, that element of it. And so in one sense, Daniel, that kind of, that's one way in which I did appreciate it more. It's like, wow, like you, you did all these things, you knew all these things, and yet you didn't let that undermine the story. Like you still mm-hmm. let the story, um, you know, the narrative flow in the way that it flowed without being like, FYI, you know, let me give you a, you know, a chart that tells you all of these things. Um, yeah. And I thought that was, I mean, it really did make me appreciate the narrative in, in, in a lot more ways. I think that's a really nice way to look at adaptation in general, exactly like you said, that you're aware of all of these facts and figures and details because it shows you did the research. So I'm watching the chat and there's a lot of concern about Amazon not caring. And I'm, we, that's a topic for maybe later today, but they've, they're doing the research. We can assume that they know the notes and the the information and the names and the details, whether they mm-hmm. use it or not, because it's up to them whether they let it get in the way of the narrative. So, yes. and Dan, this is something I wanted to get your opinion on. Because we have such scant information, like, what do you think about lack of canon almost? And oh, then for the second age, you mean? For the second age, yeah. yeah. And then creation. Oh, I mean, I... It means that they have to invent a, lot, a whole bunch of stuff, which means that they've got their own continuity that they're building. Um, and so I suppose it means that there's naturally going to be a contradiction between what's on the written page and what's going to be in the TV show. And that's mm-hmm. unavoidable. Um, so it, it's the, the lack of, it's not really, it's not that there's a lack of history and a lack of like, um, mechanics going on in the second age. Like we've got lots of the nuts and bolts of what happens, but there's a lack of actual narrative really. Yes. Um, yes. Rather than a lack of facts. I mean, what Cory was describing about the, um, the migration to Numenor, that's the start of the second age. And that was worked out in exacting detail as we've just heard. So, I mean, there are, there is lore about the second age. Um, so it's on the one hand, it's kind of, it's like they've got all that stuff and it's like it's flavor for them to inform their interpretation and their adaptation but it's but it's also the fact that they're in, inventing new things is the narrative is completely new um i i'm i'm extremely encouraged by one thing that they have said the showrunners did say that they have worked on a, a different heroic meter for each uh, race in middle earth and mm-hmm. i love that i absolutely love that that's the most encouraging thing by far that they've said for me right. because that that is very in keeping with the canons of the narrative as that quote says um because tolkien did that stuff he he, he thought about this sort of thing um yes yes so it, yeah arguments about the kind of the minutiae of the law kind of miss stuff like that um, absolutely and that is, I think, one of the other things that I would, I would call it, I think, sort of like you were saying, like a correlation, right? Uh, like you were saying in your 
controversial tweet, you know, like a correlation mm-hmm. between. I also think that there is a correlation between people who are insisting on canon and upset, you know, wanting to defend the Tolkien canon and the kind of nitpicking that is completely not only missing the point of the adaptation, like not only ignoring mm-hmm. the story of the adaptation, but even missing the point of those details in Tolkien in the yeah. first place. Um, and that is so, because again, it's so easy to just, you want to get down to details, right? Like if you're defending canon, if you're invested in canon and saying, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to be, I am prepared to be appalled by anything that deviates from what I've defined as the canon of Tolkien. Um, then of course, what you're, what you're immediately doing for is looking for cases, right? They changed that thing. That's not what it says in the book about that person. Um, that's not what, you know, that's not how it happened uh, in the book. They've changed the circumstances in some way. You know, they've given the line to another character even, you know, they've done, you know, whatever it is. Um, and the, the Galadriel discussion that's ongoing is, is like very indicative of this because Galadriel is um, a character who we have several different versions of, especially in the second age. She's yes. really, really difficult to pin down what she's doing in the second age um, and the first, but we do have the published Silmarillion to give us some guide on what she was doing in the first age at least but or some of it um but yeah she's she's a character that people seem to have this idea that's set in stone in their heads and that's the only interpretation that they're willing to to yeah and it's conceive of and it yeah it's a wonderful illustration, exactly as you say. A wonderful the the Galadriel point is a wonderful illustration of the way in which something which, and I think a lot of people don't even realize how much of that Galadriel canon picture in their heads mm-hmm. is their own investment, their own imagination, right? Very little is said about Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings. Um, most of those, like you know, when people are looking at the depiction of Galadriel and saying Galadriel isn't like that, based on what? Based on what? Um, you know, uh, it's 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 so easy. That is a line that is so easy to cross. The line between this is what the book says and this is the picture in my head. Mm. Right. I think um, the only thing that the Lord of the Rings the says, says about her history is that she was Finrod's sister. If I'm not mistaken. That's more or less the only thing that it says about her actual backstory. Right. Um, and during the drafting of the Lord of the Rings, like, if I'm not mistaken, he was considering her being Gil Gallard's sister, but that didn't end up in the published work. So irrelevant. He didn't know what but, to do with her. He knew the... that he had to leave a lot of room there because yeah. he just had, had to leave his options open. This is the fascinating thing about Galadriel, right? Is that, you know, she becomes this huge character who obviously must have been important in the Second Age. Like, it's impossible. She would have had to be on some multi-millennium sabbatical, right, in order for her not to have been really important in the Second Age. But how? What? He already had these characters, right? And we talked about this some last week, you know, how we kind of fit these things together retroactively. But, um, Brett, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just think that's such a, I mean, like, I know we talked about it last week, but I still think it's such a great example of how Tolkien himself was continuously rewriting his own canon. Like, yes. it, it was later on that he got really excited about Galadriel and then made sure that she existed in the stuff he'd already, like, that's the the best version of this, of like, oh, wait, she is important. I'm going to change my canon and backdate right. it. So, like, right. a lot of people will say whatever's most recent is canon. And I don't necessarily think that's true either, because you need this kind of pathway that... Yeah. 
it gets you from A to B, sure, but it's very important what came before all of that. Yeah. So I, I have a I have a quote that I want to read out. I, I said yeah. before we started that um, great, I, have, great. I think I have a, I think I have a quote that I think is applicable to exactly what you were just saying there, Maggie. Um, great. So this was so it's just I should give the context for this. This is from On Fairy Stories, which is Tolkien's famous essay about how he conceives of the concept of of fairy stories and the categories that are kind of adjacent to it and talks mm -hmm. about some of the history of how fairy stories came to be. Um, and this, this is from that section. This is from the section where he talks about the origins of fairy stories. Um, so this is not specifically about his own work, um, right. but it's right. but it's kind of, I think it's applicable to, to what we're discussing here. So it's uh, probably take me a minute just to read this. Um, of course, I do not deny for I feel strongly the fascination of the desire to unravel the intricately knotted and ramified history of the branches on the tree of tales. It is closely connected with the philologist's study of the tangled skein of language, of which I know some small pieces. But even with regard to language, it seems to me that the essential quality and aptitudes of a given language in a living moment is both more important to seize and far more difficult to make explicit than its linear history. So with regard to fairy stories, I feel that it is more interesting and also in its way more different to consider what they are, what they have become for us, and what values the long alchemic processes of time have produced in them. In Darcent's words, I would say, we must be satisfied with the soup that is set before us and not desire to see the bones of the ox out of which it has been boiled. Um, and so that last quote, the, 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 the thing from this end, that's why I asked you, yeah. Corey, why uh, has your understanding of mechanics and the drafting process and the, the, the history of Middle Earth stuff and the long years of retconning and retroactively retrofitting different storylines and everything else, has that improved your appreciation of the story itself? Um, yeah. Because I, I think what we what we end up with when we look at the the whole legendarium is a soup. It's 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 like a body of myth. It's like a real world body of myth that um, what you might expect. If you look at classical mythology, for example, you've got right. different stories for different valleys in Greece. Basically, like the next <laughs> the next village over in the next valley, you've got a different version of right right X story. You know, um, uh, and and so what we've got if we look at the whole breadth of the Middle Earth legendarium is we've got a body of myth, which a lot of times the answer to a given question is both yes and no. And that's not to say that it can be rewritten in any way that you care to rewrite it. It just means that a lot of it is open to interpretation and people don't necessarily um, appreciate that. I, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, but <laughs> so yeah. I think yeah. I do. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's interesting, actually, thinking about them. There are two things that are really interesting to me here. One is, you know, you're in your questions, you're kind of in uh, sort of paralleling Tolkien's like completed works is like the soup. Right. And in a sense, going back and like the mathematical tables in the beginning of uh, the nature of Middle Earth is kind of like the bones of the ox. Right. From which yeah, the soup is made. Yeah, I'm slightly taking the metaphor out of context to, to apply yeah, it. Yeah, or that, applying it in a different way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and of course, like, you know, what Tolkien was talking about, things like influences there, right? Mm. Like, the, yeah. you know, the, the 
uh, and stuff, which is which is a little bit different. Um, because yeah, so I, I have a hard time in some ways answering it on that level because, like, I find the to me, it's like it's part of the soup. You know, like I, it's not even mm. it's not even the bones of the ox. It's uh, or maybe it's um, I don't know. The, the bones of the ox is like the Kalevala and yeah, um, exactly. Like, Though it's, I don't know, I, I, so I'm trying. To, I'm trying to see if I can if I can fairly extend the analogy. Um, yeah. I don't think it works well, but I'll give it a shot anyway. It's like okay, I really enjoy this particular soup, right? I go to this restaurant and they make this soup, and I love that soup. Right. That's like me reading, re- reading and rereading The Lord of the Rings is like showing up at this restaurant and eating the soup. Right. Um, when I enjoy reading the history of Middle Earth. Right. Uh, you know, the, especially the history of The Lord of the Rings section right, about the making of The Lord of the Rings. Um, that to me is not exactly like saying, OK, I'm going to stop eating the soup and I'm going to I'm going to like instead. It's more like. Um, getting a backstage pass to like meet the chef and see how the chef makes the soup. And I'm like, still asking him for the recipe. Yeah. 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 Or like having him like learning (laughs) his techniques. Like how did he, how did you make the soup? Right. And that like learning the recipe of something, like watching a cooking show, right. Watching, you know, watching somebody make something isn't, that doesn't make you enjoy it less. Right just because you see what the recipe is and you see the process, especially when I would add thinking about cooking shows, when you're watching people cook things that you know you yourself cannot cook, right? You're like, I know I can't do that, right? And so it adds like an extra enjoyment. Like I can still enjoy the, like, uh, so I'll give an example of a soup I've never successfully made well. Lobster bisque, my wife loves lobster bisque. I've never yet made a successful lobster bisque in my life, right? So if I were watching a cooking show where, like, you know, one of our favorite restaurants, I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm able to watch the chef and he's showing us how he makes his, uh, his wonderful lobster bisque, I would, I would be, I, I would love to see that. Like, I would love to learn that. It would be really fun, and I would only appreciate his lobster bisque more. I mean, assuming he doesn't do anything truly nasty to it behind the scenes. Um, th- you know, anyway, so like that's, that's uh, but again, it, it doesn't, it doesn't compromise the eating of the soup. Right. Um, and it's not an alternative to like, again, the, the, one of the things that's important in Tolkien's original metaphor there, right. Or the metaphor that he's quoting, right. And adapting mm-hmm. is, is the alternative, right. Like when a bowl of soup is put in front of you, um, if all you do is poke through it and try to figure out, like, learn as much as you can about the ox, um, and you're not even eating the soup, right? You're not enjoying the soup at all. You're not even consuming the soup. You're just sort of taking the soup as a laboratory specimen and trying to and trying to figure it out. Um, and that's not how soup works, right? That's not how you're. Um, so again, so I feel in when looking at. Though other, you know, the, those other, the, the, the other Tolkien stuff, right, behind the, his notes and thoughts and brainstormings and, and, and ideas. Um, I don't feel that that's an alternative to eating the soup. Like, I'm still eating the soup. I'm just, in some ways, like now again, like, so say I learn, I don't know, like I watch the chef make his lobster bisque and there, there's some ingredient that I never would have guessed that he puts in it, right? Maybe I'm actually going to, like, 
next time I eat it, I'm going to be like, this is still delicious. I'm like, oh, but like, no, wait, now, like, no, now I can tell, like, the whatever it is that he put in it, right? Like the cardamom or whatever. And I'm like, okay, cool, right? That's awesome. And uh, where I, I, I never would have appreciated that, like, note of the soup, really, no, wouldn't have understood it. And so wouldn't have fully appreciated it before. Um, for me, that's kind of the way that that experience, um, the way it enhances the experience. Now, but the other interesting thing, Daniel, about you're bringing in that, and I never really thought about this before, taking that, and this is admittedly, as you were kind of apologizing for to some extent, kind of taking his discussion, his metaphor out of the context in which he's talking about it, right? Yeah. But yeah, I, just, I was reading it earlier and I, I thought it was yeah, tangentially applicable. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, uh, but, but if we apply it to adaptation, right, to the issue of adaptation, right, um, then uh, it's it, beca- it 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 actually I think becomes applicable in some new sort of ways, right? Mm. Um, the I, the number one thing I would say is like you you you, you first thing you've got to enjoy the soup, like or or not. I mean, you can hate the soup, like you don't have yeah. to like it, but you've got to taste the soup for what it is. And if the first thing you're doing, I mean, again, I feel like the people again, like what we we're just talking about, like like detail nitpicking people right and i understand like sometimes you can't help yourself like i do it i still twitch sometimes too and i there are times when i'm watching when i'm still like that's not the way it was like that's wrong like it's still that impulse happens but but again if all you're doing if the bowl of soup is put in front of you and you're just picking through it and being like oh that shouldn't be that they shouldn't put you know peas in this or whatever like you you're not eating the soup. You're not even giving it a shot. Maybe it's good with peas. You've never had it with peas before. Maybe it's good with peas. I'm so personally <laughs> this metaphor worked for so long, Corey, but it absolutely <laughs> it absolutely makes sense though. Because like yeah. the thing we keep coming back to too is like the difference is that now all those people that just want to dig through the soup and talk about the history of the ox, which just makes me think of that Portlandia sketch, if you guys have seen it about the history of the chicken and did that chicken have a good life in that farm and did he wear sweaters? And like the, the detail they go into about these things (laughs) there's always going to be those people that that's all they care about like you know they just want to be the hipster that sniffs the coffee and knows where that bean came from they don't actually care about drinking the coffee so like now we have this platform for people to be noisy and all we can do is take a deep breath so like i don't we don't have to engage with that it's that if that's your bag peace be with you you know good luck to you enjoying soup ever in your life but (laughs) i think like i think i said it before but like i still have my torch and pitchfork ready to riot and start a fight with creators of my favorite works but i keep them in the backpack so it's like take a breath let's see if i need those first Uh, you know so coming into it with a slightly more open mind and trying the soup first we're just going to start making these catchphrases. Gladriel and uh, Gap Beer and try the soup first. Try the soup first. Yeah. yeah. Just try the soup. And I, I, I think this is, this is, um, uh, this is something that is, you can see this. And I, so, I mean, I, we're going to talk about the wheel of time adaptation like that. We're going to, we're, we're going to talk about that soon. I'm going to just say in advance of that discussion, I see a lot of people not trying the soup. When it came to the rings, to the to the not not the rings of power, I see that too. But uh, when it came to the wheel of time, I see a lot of people not not really trying the soup. Um, uh, I, I'm gonna I'll, I'll give a public warning before we have that conversation. Um, I'm I've been a Robert Jordan fan since the '90s. Uh, I quite liked the adaptation actually. I didn't love it. It's not my favorite ever, 
but I was really interested in some. I think they did some things really well, and I was really interested. I didn't love everything. There's and there are some things I kind of dis elements that I disliked uh, pretty strongly. Um, but on the whole, I actually found it very interesting, and I'm not gonna. So just warning, I'm not gonna hate on it when we. <laughs> When we talk, brace yourself for me not hating it uh, when we talk about it. I'm just saying, I, I'm just saying. And I haven't read the book, so you can start yeah. bringing that sort of hate, you know, as well. Because there's always yeah. people that are like, well, I can't even engage with you if you haven't read the text. It's like, right, well, right. you know what? I'm going to talk to you about the remediation and right. let's let's look at that. So we'll get there. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I think it's a really good way to it's a really good way to think about it. And, and uh, you know, and I wonder somebody was I forget it came went back a little uh, it went past a little while back in the comments. But um, people were talking about um, quotes from the showrunners that made people the brings of power showrunners mm -hmm. that made people uneasy. And I was really, really glad. I think, Edith, I think you were the one who talked about it in the comments there um, about how, like, we have to be careful about who said it like who quoted them like you know because mm -hmm. the, the the quote was something along the lines of like you know they don't care and they're ready to change things you know from tolkien and stuff um remember that um you are reading this being quoted by a journalist who might also very likely be motivated to have, if they can quote somebody as saying something controversial, more people will read their article, right? So, I mean, there is a, um, it's it's hard. Like, I, and, their, and their parent company might be owned by somebody who's, uh, you know, against Amazon. So, like, right. there's there's so many different layers of this that you can't take anything out of context. I I agree. Like, it's good to be aware of those things if they're said, know where they came from, but like everything else, take a breath and say, well, who said it and why might they have said that besides just their opinion? There, there are some quotes that I have seen that do worry me too. Uh, sure. No, I will, I will sure. say. The, 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 the one quote about Galadriel, um, one of the showrunners said that she was full of piss and vinegar piss was and the vinegar, expression. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not helpful, dude. Like, <laughs> not helping. I, I'm yeah, not. But... I'm not saying that she can't be spunky and you know have some kind of um, adventurousness to her, um, but it's just the language. It's just. Mm. <laughs> but again, that as Maggie says, it's like one quote out of context, and uh, it's very easy to get misquoted. It's happened to me before. I've been quoted in newspapers before, and yeah. It, I've had a long half an hour conversation and half of a sentence has ended up in the article. And, <laughs> well, and, and this was, yeah, it happens. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the things that was so instructive uh, for me on this whole, you know, the whole thing about the, you know, the, um, the, you know, the IGN video was edited from a three hour conversation in which things right. were put in a very different order and in a different context. It's, I, don't take back anything that I said. I would not have said them in that order and in that way. Um, uh, and you exactly. didn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. And I, I didn't say them in that order and in that way. Um, and again, like, it's not, I'm not saying that like malicious violence was done to what I was saying, but like, I, I think that some impressions not intended by the editor of that video were created in the way that that was put together. But again, see, it's, it's the thing that was really instructive for me seeing that was people objecting and saying, um, you know, how can like, look, you said this, right? And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah. like there yeah. it is. There's me saying it, 
right? And again, it's not even that I take it back. Because like, even look at the dwarf beards thing. Again, like what I was saying, as I explained in the first class, what I was saying in the first session, what I was saying was I was talking about the reaction to like from Lord of the Rings fans based on what's what's in the Lord of the Rings. And I was saying that in the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien doesn't say anything about dwarf women having beards. And the context of it was talking about how um, how surprised I've been at the things that people seem, many people, not everybody, but many people seem to feel like is fundamentally important to the identity of Tolkien. Dwarf, female dwarfs having beards being one of them, right? And I'm like, when, how did this become an essential concept? This didn't even become a clear concept in Tolkien's mind until years after writing The Lord of the Rings, right? Then he kind of doubled down on it, but then he also took it back again later on, it seems to me. Uh, It seems pretty clear to me that he did that. So... Uh, anyway, so I was, but I was just talking about in the Lord of the Rings, right? If you've read the Lord of the Rings, it's impossible to emerge from the Lord of the Rings with a conviction that dwarf women having beards is essential to Tolkien's creative vision. Like you can't, like that's what that that's what I was talking about in that quote, and then of course it's taken, you know, in that sense out of context. But but yeah, so just kind of watching this happen to me, and I'm like, yeah, how many times have I heard a snippet, right? Uh, and said, well, look, like, this dude said that, so there you go. Like, there's no way around it. I heard those words coming out of his own mouth. He wasn't misquoted. It's like, well, there are different uh, different ways to hear that. But um, anyway. Here's a question. Here's a canon question. Okay. Do elves have pointed ears? Oh, Marty. Great question. <laughs> Great question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they always seem to in, in adaptations. Um, yeah. They, they, they tend to in sort of adjacent fantasy fiction. Um, yep. because because of Tolkien and because of that um, ever-present depiction. Do they have it? Because in Tolkien, I mean, in the published works that were published in his lifetime, he never, ever describes elvish ears. Um, it, you could argue that it was taken for granted that elves have pointy ears. Yes. And yet the, Tolkien's elves are different to elves that were prevalent in popular culture at that time. So, the, you know, the diminutive um, kind of... J.M. Barry sort of elves, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. No, exactly. The Tinkerbell elves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, I I think it's that's such a good illustration of this question, right? Um, And the thing that I always just want to come back to with this is to say, look, make sure... It's one thing to have an opinion, right? I mean, you're welcome to it. If you think Tolkien's elves have pointed ears or not, there's definitely enough wiggle room to maintain either case. Like, imagine if Amazon had, had... Put elves without pointed ears in the trailer. Right. right. <laughs> and yeah. Imagine the uproar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, if the, if Gladwell's hair had been put back and her ear were were rounded, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, there would have been an amazing uproar, just as there was an uproar among some saying that that shouldn't be. Um, you, you can't win, obviously, with these kinds of things. But um, I. But anyway, I um, I, yes. So here's here's what I think is real like where people need to kind of maintain their focus. And again, as you say, it comes back to the canon question, right? And that religious orthodoxy edge that comes into it, right? When you have put something into the category, into that category in your head, right? It is canon that elves have pointed ears, right? If that's your conclusion, right? That Mm -hmm. it's canon that elves have pointed ears. um, You're convinced that that's Tolkien's, concept and that's canon therefore um but now you're ready to die defending that right you're ready to shout down anybody who disagrees with that um because by god it's canon right that elves have pointed ears um 
And the thing is, like, you've got to, I think you have to, not only is it not really productive uh, to talk that way, frankly, I don't even feel like it's productive to talk that way about uh, many religious things, but uh, when it comes to Tolkien stuff, it's not productive. But here's the thing. Whether or not you're convinced that elves do or do not have pointed ears, one fact is perfectly clear, and that is Tolkien clearly did not care very much about this <laughs> issue. You can tell on account of he never talked about it. I mean, you've got to go to one indirect reference in a letter he wrote to one person, right, in order to get any direct evidence about this at all, right? There, I mean, that's, there actually there is one other place as well, yeah, just to clarify. There is one other place, yeah, but... Yeah. Um, but again, that was written in pencil and it was not in, it, it wasn't written as a fact, you know, to yeah. exemplify. Not take up a lot of his brain space. It was, no. well, it was part of, it was part of the, uh, etymologies of Quenya, I think. Um, yeah. 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 Which was published in one of the history of yeah. Middle Earths, but it was written in pencil in note form in a, you know, right. in a scrapbook. Mean, so for wasn't... the record, for the record, I personally am in the camp that I, I do think that Tolkien was assuming a pointed ear. Um, I think so too. It seems that he was taking it for granted and never talked about it. But again, it's clearly not essential. The fact that it's never an issue, that it's never raised, observed, talked about. um, There's no, no human in Tolkien's world ever does that. Like, look to see if elves have pointy ears, right? Um, Like that's, it's just, it's, it never, ever, ever comes up during a story ever. Uh, it's only in, an issue to those that need to talk about where the ox came from. Right. Or did the chickens exactly. wear sweaters? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so the 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 question. So therefore, like again, the, so the one thing that's perfectly clear is that if you're making a big deal about this, you are not in step with Tolkien's vision. Mm-hmm. For, and so stop saying that you're defending Tolkien's vision when you're doing exactly what he never did. Um, not only did he not go out of his way to do it. Like he, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's an utter, utter non-issue in Tolkien's writings. And so why are you making it an issue? Like, why should, why should we care? He's not, the, the text gives us no reason to care. Now there are things the text does give us reason to care about, right? Um, things that are really important to the story. And if you change them or, or deviate from then like it would be, um, it would be different. I mean, this is why, like, I dislike the Shadows of Mordor game adaptation um, of Tolkien, because, like, I'll say, using a ring of power in order to dominate the will of others, that's not a good plan. I think the books are tolerably clear on this point, yeah. right? That that's not a good idea, um, and good will not come of doing that. Um, and so, therefore, if you're going to make the whole core of your like concept that like we are going to create a situation in which we're going to advocate using a ring of power to dominate the wills of others. Um, you know, there's, um, there's some issues there. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Brett, a great question. Follow up to that. How do I feel about them making a Sildur a ring wraith? Um, I, I dislike it. I dislike almost every single one. I've heard, I don't think I've heard all of them, but I've heard many of the Shadows of Mordor stories about where the Nazgul came from. And Didn't they make Helm Hammerhand one? They did. Well, made Helm Hammerhand a Nazgul. That, yeah. yeah. That makes me just shake yeah. my head. And, and the problem, the, the reason that I strongly dislike their rationales is that 
they seem to reflect an, um, an, uh, an enormously simple-minded view of what the rings of power were. Like the rationale, as I recall, from several of the is that like basically they once like came in contact with. It's it's like as if you could make somebody a Nazgul turn into a Nazgul when they die by like touching them with a ring at one point, and like that gives them the like, and then they might turn into a Nazgul when they die, and like that statement, like you turn into a Nazgul when you die if you ever come into contact with a ring of power. I'm just like, let me count the ways that that sentence misunderstands the whole what the story yeah. is talking about, the rings of power, about being a Nazgul, about, you know, the Wraith world and everything. It's like there's so many different levels of um, not really thinking about what the story is talking about that I'm just like, I, that's not a thoughtful or interesting adaptation to me at all. Um, that's, what, that's what Tolkien was talking about when he was in that quote about the canons of narrative cannot be wholly different. That's exactly what he meant. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but um, yeah. Anyway, it's it's. Um, um, well, I'm glad uh, weirdness unfolds. I I I do. I feel a little guilty. I always feel a little bit guilty. Um, bad mouthing Shadows of Mordor because I I I I have not played it or the sequel. Um, I, I um, I've you know I've read about it. I've read stuff that they produced and everything. But I, I haven't sat down and played through the game, um, so I, I, you know, always no, feel I, like I, I haven't. I haven't either. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I used to be a games developer, but I, I've never played um, any Lord of the Rings games of any kind. Um, the reason being mostly because they they either completely um, don't understand the the core of the story. Or they understand it too well, and it's too in depth, and it's there's too much, and it's Lotro, and, yeah. <laughs> and I I've never played Lotro really seriously because it's just it'll be too much of a time sink for me. I can't I can't play a game that's that true to the canon and that <laughs> long winded and um, involved. Um, you mentioned Star Trek earlier. I remember when I discovered star trek online i'm a big star trek fan as well it's right, like right. my other fandom thing that i'm really passionate about and it's been a lifelong thing for me um i remember when i discovered star trek online and i just sort of lost 24 hours it was, it was like it was like was this a video game or a coma <laughs> right, yeah. right right um which a, a game like that set in middle earth is just gonna be even worse <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I love those um, moments though, where you just fall down that lovely rabbit hole. Can you crawl right. back out? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, but I so I I at the end of the day, I don't think the idea. I I, I feel just kind of generally cautious about using the term canon because I, I mean honestly, it seems to me that the majority of people who use it ultimately, I mean, there's a lot of. So I'm also a little bit uncomfortable with the word gatekeeper and gatekeeping because I feel like that kind of that's a, it's it's now like an insult that gets kind of thrown around a lot, which I think is is not always fair. And also that word means has different senses, which are sometimes not um, that is sometimes it means like a. a active discrimination mm. against like some kind of minority population. Right. Um, and sometimes it doesn't exactly mean that. Um, uh, so anyway, I don't find that word super helpful, but um, I, um, 
I, in general, I find myself, I'm always very hesitant. I, 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 and I, I, I just, let me say this a different way. I have yet to be convinced that the concept of canon, certainly as applied to Tolkien, or as people have been applying it to Tolkien, is a useful thing at all. Um, is a useful concept. I've never, I've never seen that applied in a way that I think is useful and constructive. I just, mm. I just don't. Um, I tend to see it applied by people who are looking for, um, who are basically justifying their own convictions, their own, their own headcanon. You know, to use to use that phrase. Like this is what I, this is how I picture Tolkien, and I'm going to create a structure which gives an apparently external authority to this, you know, vision that I have, what I'm okay and not okay with. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's, uh, that's where things get, that's where things get tricky. Um, and especially since also, um, I want to come back to one other idea because this is an, this is another way in which I think, the importation of the concept of canon. As you say, Star Wars was one of the places where the discussion of canon was like most, you know, urgent, right? Um, and kind of goes back a, 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 a fair ways. Um, and uh, Daniel, you were arguing earlier that you think a more useful word is continuity, right? Like mm -hmm. to talk about like a particular continuity. Um, yeah, not, not in every instance, but not in every instance. I think that right. word makes more sense when people use the word canon, what they really mean is continuity, but, but yeah. not, not necessarily always. Right. Um, and um, the, uh, the, so the trick, one, one of the trick, I, I think that, I, I, I think that that's right. I think that it is useful uh, in a lot of contexts. But but that that concept is also a sort of associated with the idea of a canon, right? Uh, in some ways, which makes it tricky. Is another reason why I think it's so prob problematic to apply the concept of of canon to Tolkien, right? Mm -hmm. um, I too say, I, you know, Carl, I, I think I agree with you. I think if somebody twisted my arm and said, "Define canon for Tolkien," I would say something like you just said: "Everything Tolkien wrote is canon." But see, that would not satisfy many people, right? Because that means that the canon of Tolkien contains many contradictions and it's not continuous, right? Um, you know, who exactly captures Baron on, you know, on his way to, to, to Angband, right? Um, the canon would then contain, you know, different versions of that story, which are not continuous, right? Um, and I do think that a kind of continuity seems to be, when I hear people like, wanting to defend the Tolkien canon, there does seem to be a, in my opinion, often artificial uh, continuity that they've, that they've kind of created and are um, uh, insisting upon there. Um, uh, which, again, strikes me as wholly contrary to the idea of, you know, again, defining, you know, how you can define canon uh, in, uh, in Tolkien's world. As somebody was pointing out, even within his own works, Tolkien, I, I, like what it says about Galadriel in the appendix, does not exactly match what Galadriel tells Frodo in in the Fellowship of the Ring. Like they're not exactly consistent. Um, and this again, this is Tolkien. We're talking about a guy who often, like, a character says something, and then Tolkien's like, "I wonder what that means." That sounds I, good. 
mm-hmm. figure that out now. Like, I have mm-hmm. no idea what he meant by that. And now I got to figure that out. You know, like that's anyway. And that's just fun. Right. That's uh, uh, that's just that's, you know, fun. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. So that's where, again, I, I think although I do really like the. I would I would I would generally encourage I think the replacement like let's not talk about canon let's talk about continuity in terms of like like you know what um instead of saying what Star Wars canon are we talking about saying like what Star Wars continuity seems to me a more fruitful mm-hmm. way to talk about that without that edge of religious orthodoxy uh that would you know kind of goes along with it um or and like or superiority right like my canon is mm-hmm. a, a higher up the hierarchy than your canon is or whatever um but it's more of an inclusion statement too which is quite handy i was thinking that with marvel we had that earlier in the comments and there's that whole separate section of marvel for the what if where they actually said well what if you know so they went completely out of canon but if you're able to say with continuity i'm including the what ifs all of a sudden you can have captain carter and it makes sense and right yeah, yeah, that, that, that was cool. another comment that I got actually with my little whole Twitter controversy. It was one of the ones that I've stood out to me because it was interesting. Was uh, people talking about how um, people have gotten the idea of a multiverse to embed embedded in their heads because of Marvel, um, yeah, right? Uh, which you know, if you know me better, you'd know that it was because of Star Trek that I've got that idea <laughs> embedded in my head. But, <laughs> right, um, right. But but. Yeah, I, I mean, that wasn't really at all where I was coming from. I don't see the Tolkien corpus as having any kind of <laughs> uh, branching set of realities. Of course not. But, yeah. um, right. but it is, but it is, you know, at, at a meta level, there are different versions of different stories. I've had whole conversations with people who I respect greatly who, who consider the Book of Lost Tales version of the Gondolin story being the definitive version with with the mechanized dragons and everything and um and, and that doesn't necessarily fit with anything else but if that's the way that you want to interpret it then i i'd say good good luck to you all the power to you mm. um yeah 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 no it's um it's it's yeah but it's it is just it is i think uh, these differences between the question of Tolkien canon and these other canons, um, you know, these other fandoms, these, I mean, there's a whole, as you said, there's a whole different set of parameters when you're talking about Marvel yeah. canon or Marvel continuity um, than when you're talking about, to, or Star Trek or Star yeah, Wars well, or Tolkien. Like the, all four of those have very different issues. Or Batman, think about Batman for crying out loud. Holy cow. Yeah. Talk about a complicated canon situation, right? And getting more so, I mean, yeah, I, no. I don't want to go down this DC rabbit hole, but we know that Michael Keaton's going to be reappearing as Batman in the new Flash movie. So, like, is there a multiverse? Like, what does there's right? There's so many different routes we can go down. Tolkien doesn't have that. Yeah, yeah, Tolkien doesn't have that. Tolkien has different issues, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Different, also complicated, also complicated different. in different ways. But again, mm-hmm. it's because of that. Just it's the differences there that I think talking about canon um again i'm, I'm going to take a lot of convincing that even asking the question what is canon in tolkien i don't even think it's useful i i, I don't think it's a useful question at all um and i am even more confident that the people who are really invested in that question and really talk about i'm i, I mean i'm going to take even more convincing that what they're doing is like productive uh basically it seems often to be destructive but um uh, but even when it's not actively destructive, I think it's it's just it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't help. That's not a useful thing, I think. Um, and in general, I think it's a 
perilous thing, <laughs> I would have to say. I think it's more, uh, you, we're talking about comic books. I think it's more useful with comic books because of the fact that comic book readers expect the shared universe. A superhero comic book readers, this is not, you know, necessarily graphic novels and so on, but that the, the, the superhero genre, it sort of depends on it having a shared universe and a set of rules and something right. to bind it all together. And, and it, there are inconsistencies that you can find, but generally those companies work extremely hard to make sure that things are consistent. And, and that's because of the, the type of genre that that is. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different circumstance to when you look at a writer like Tolkien. Um, I don't know if I've already said this, but the one of the arguments that I encountered a lot as well with my tweet was that Tolkien is one single writer. And so it matters even more so because he's one person and not a group or a company or um, and so it matters even more so to have a, a, a set of rules that you that you judge the canonicity of things by. Um, and my answer to that is why? Yeah. Why? Like, but it works perfectly well for H.P. Lovecraft to, for there to be, you know, third party third party writers coming in and making up their own stories and using that universe to their own. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree. It's it's. I mean, in some ways, I think it makes it more natural to circle the wagons there, right? Because uh-huh. it feels like more of an intrusion. Um, uh, it's intrusion, intrusion, right? I don't think somebody, um, somebody who wrote like a new Marvel story, like, you know, the, the what if series, you know, Maggie, as you were saying, right. You know, somebody who comes in and does something like that with Marvel doesn't feel like, Oh, this is uh, a violation, right. Of the Marvel universe. And partly, but one of the reasons I don't have that particular emotional reaction is that there isn't that sense of like, one singular vision like it's like you know it's a communal thing and it has always been you know a collaborative thing so having somebody else come in and collaborate doesn't seem like a violation of that pattern Mm -hmm. right whereas when you do have the one single author situation somebody else contributing you know changing things and contributing something different feels more Mm. like an intrusion right especially when we don't have the author there present and i don't just mean tolkien because he's passed away but also when you think about past adaptations like susan cooper's dark is rising the one i bring up all the time she sold the rights in the 70s you know she was not involved in the adaptation and she publicly you know said i'm not involved with this so that just made the fans more mad like why didn't you talk to this person because they'll be able to fix your issues so yeah not taking that human into account if they are alive in the world and you're not taking them into account, then I have betrayal feelings. Right. If they're not alive, but you're not considering it, then I still have betrayal feelings, but it's on their behalf, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, that's very natural. And part, part of that I think is just like, again, the sort of, it puts the whole thing in a different, so Daniel, I agree with you that in one sense, logically speaking, how is it a different situation? It doesn't make it an intrinsically different situation. Right. Um, And yet it does frame it emotionally differently Mm -hmm. right and that's i think what you hear with the people who get upset about this they're passionately defending like tolkien and tolkien's vision like it's about him it's about his like they've got it you know maggie as you say he's dead so they have to speak up for him right somebody has to defend him and they're standing up for this and again i come back to what we've (laughs) said now many times there are people whose job that is 
and they've approved <laughs> what Amazon yeah. is doing. Yeah. So, and, and, the, and the books are going to remain unchanged as well. And uh, the books are going to remain said. unchanged. Exactly. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people feel it's their job because they know where that ox came from. I'm going to keep going back to this metaphor because it's fantastic. Like, yeah, I care yeah. about these nuts and bolts and I know all of them. So therefore, I'm in charge. And that's just okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is. It is understandable. I feel I feel great. Like empathy for that oh. perspective I get you know I was there uh, and I I totally understand that impulse I really really do um, um, and so all I keep saying is I just to testify that I having emerged from that and uh, and and uh, gotten to the point where I now am willing to try the soup uh, instead of just uh, uh, you know picking through and complaining about the fact that you obviously got the recipe wrong uh, in making this soup. Um, uh, I, my my life has been much richer <laughs> since I since I made that choice. So just a just a just a suggestion, uh, just a suggestion. Um, uh, just um, I wanted to say one thing quickly. Uh, I see that Carl Hostetter is in the chat here, and he said yeah. he was previously digging me out for my comments on the um, the pointed ears reference in the uh, I think it's the Quenya dictionary. Uh, obviously, I'm not on his level of um, knowing the the vocabulary of the Elvish languages, of course. Um, but I will scroll upwards and read through that because I yeah no I mean I, the, the, but the, the the reference was to the, the the fact that the root of the word of uh, the leaf is pointed and that's why the the word is part of the root of the word ear I think is what he was saying right um, yeah and it's why I think which, it's a perfectly good argument to that's why I'm I am personally convinced by the argument that says Tolkien did imagine yeah. elves with pointed ears and was taking that for granted. Yeah, but yeah, no, I have, that, I have obviously read that, uh, yeah. that example, and I, I do agree with that too. Um, yeah. But I just don't, I did, I don't know because I have don't have access to everything. I don't know how prevalent that that interpretation of that route was and how long that lasted. Or, or so how can, when, I appreciate, I appreciate emerge? the clarification. I mean, is what I wanted yeah. to say. Yeah, exactly. But 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 yeah, I mean, but of course, it doesn't change the overall point that like this is obviously not something that he it never enters into the stories it's never an issue uh it sure. never gets raised um and uh so yeah we have some evidence of it does provide evidence you know of what he was thinking behind the scenes you know at that point yeah i, I just wanted to say i just appreciate the clarification for Carl. Sure, sure. yeah awesome um all right um very good well we're coming up on our time and I think I'm going to rather than like pulling Maggie after the time where she and I both have to like dash off and do things <laughs> for our children I'm end four to, minutes early I'm going to end four minutes early I think that's what I'm going to do just to we probably uh, won't by the end of this but <laughs> quit while I'm ahead but anyway Daniel thanks for uh, Thank coming. So much. tell people where uh, where folks can find you uh, yeah so uh, my YouTube channel is um, Voice of Geekdom um, which is you can find that i think it'll probably be in the description below um so i do content uh, like this i do uh, sort of long form content where i do podcasts i've interviewed various different people in the tolkien fandom um including yourself cory and maggie you've been part of the panel on my on my channel before in the past um talking again about rings of power although that was a long time ago so we were talking about how there was no information <laughs> mostly. there's a bit um, more to talk about now <laughs> yeah there's a lot more um 
so yeah, I, I do stuff like this. I also have a long running series where I talk about the Silmarillion um, and I sort of go through chapter by chapter or uh, segment by segment within chapters and talk about some of the different versions that came through. And um, it's sort of a, a series that's designed for first time readers and to explain some things and to kind of ease people into the story there. Um, and just the standard law content that you get elsewhere on on other channels across the uh, YouTube world, I guess. Um, so yeah. I think if you uh, check in on Mythgard's Twitter and uh, whatnot, we shared your socials um, in the promotion for this episode, so it should all be there as well. Awesome. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And my, we, we will Twitter put the link Facebook in and so on. Description. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, it was great having you along. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate the invitation. Um, yeah, it's been been good fun. It's been a good conversation. Always. Very good. Well, thanks, everybody. So I have to uh, warn folks that I'm going well, to be out of commission for a little while. I'm traveling. I got some travel coming up. So I'm actually not going to be able to be around for Other Minds Enhanced for the next two weeks, actually. Maggie, this is new even before. We talked about this last week. It's going to be two weeks in a row now that I'm not going to be able to do it because I'm going to be traveling for a couple weeks. I usually Most of my travel tends to be weekend travel, so my Wednesdays are usually fairly safe, safe but uh, not in April and May, it turns out. So um, two weeks maybe three probably two uh, the third is still uncertain i'm trying to i'm trying to i gotta help my son move out of his dorm room and i i don't know when i'm gonna go out, get out there so we'll see but anyway so um we'll be back probably on the week of the oh shoot what is it um 11th yeah the 11th i think M yeah. may 11th is when we'll be back Keep an eye on socials and on Mythgard's uh, miscellany page we'll keep an update there of yeah. when the next is going to be yeah, very good. And we'll um, uh, we should um, um, uh, we should be uh, uh, we may even who knows maybe we'll have more to talk about. Maybe we'll have there'll be uh, uh, more things released between now and then that we can that we can discuss. Imagine though. Who knows? Fingers crossed. And I and I do want to come around to the wheel of time discussion soon too. I've been uh, I've been preparing. Maybe I'll have, to dig into it. finished rereading the whole wheel of time by the time we get there. I doubt it, but um, all right. Very good. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, see you guys in a couple of weeks. Thanks again, Daniel, for joining us. Appreciate it. Cheers. Yeah. Bye now. <laughs>